the theme today is who is my neighbor now, three weeks ago I had no idea who Saman Kunin was some of you may still be unaware of who that name belongs to Saman Kunin is the name of the former Thai Navy SEAL who died during the rescue of the 12 boys on the Thai soccer team and their coach today although I have never met him I feel like I know Saman in some way. I have come to know a part of him, an honorable part of him. His life, as well as the lives of those 13 rescued soccer team members, have intersected with mine. They came near to me through our current world-connected te world technology. Their lives have been brought into my living room, into my consciousness, and into my heart. I'll tell you why coming near matters in a moment, but first, let's take a look at the drama that brought the entire world in front of their televisions, smartphones, and tablets, searching for the latest information available. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say there were probably at least a billion people watching that drama. We, the world, held our collective breath for many days as we watched that drama unfold for the group of the Thai soccer players. Trapped by rising water two miles or so inside of a northern Thailand cave. Many of us prayed for the children and their families. As parents, our hearts broke for the parents of those children whose lives were completely out of their parental control, while simultaneously thanking God that our children were not among them. While we focused on those imprisoned, one of their saviors, Saman Kunan lost his life while placing oxygen tanks around the route the boys would follow back to their freedom and lives. Saman voluntarily faced the danger the cave represented and courageously offered his skills and talents for the benefit of others whom he did not previously know. I know him now as a hero. All who took part in the cave rescue are heroes. Salmon, however, is dead. I'd like to repeat the words that his father offered. He said to his son, rest in peace, rest well, your daddy loves you. His young wife said this about her husband, I miss you. I love you like you are my very heart. From now on, when I wake up, who will I kiss? Saman and the other volunteers physically came near to those who needed his help. The rest of us, who were tens, hundreds, and thousands of miles away, came near to all those on site emotionally and spiritually. For several days, we were all consciously connected. Praise God that as the drama ended well for the children and their families, the world could breathe a collective sigh of relief. Our prayers now can be offered for the boy's recovery and for Saman and the healing of his family. Earlier, I mentioned that the people in peril in Thailand were brought near to me, near to us. It's that phrase, near to me, that I'd like to focus on just for a moment. 
The Greek word used for neighbor in our scripture is plasion. It is a derivative of the word for near. It means close by. As a noun, it means neighbor, that is, a fellow, countryman, Christian, or friend. So a neighbor is someone who has been brought near to us or to whom we have been brought near. The focus of our topic today has to do with discovering who is our neighbor or who our neighbor is or who our neighbors are. I guess the lawyer who asked Jesus that question wanted to know who it was that he should love as he loved himself. Heaven forbid we should love somebody by mistake. The passage Cheryl read earlier, oh, Cheryl didn't read the passage. I am so sorry. Could you come up now and read the back? You can tell I don't do this all the time, huh? <laughs> yeah, I do. I really do, yeah. <laughs> I just lost my job. You know, I saw you sitting there. I thought, what's she doing there? <laughs> morning. So, we'll just kind of go back here a little bit. Our scripture reading today is from Luke 10, 25 through 37, in addition to your own Bible. It is on the back side of your message notes, or beginning on page 742. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. You guys are way ahead of me here. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by a chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. Very nice, thank you. You can sit, sit down, please. Okay, um, I'll go back a little bit then. The focus of our topic today, obviously, again, has to do with discovering who our neighbor is. I guess the lawyer who asked Jesus that question, now you heard him ask that question, uh, wanted to know who it was that he should love as he loved himself. And... Of course, we don't want to love anybody by mistake. So the whole passage begins with, and behold, a certain lawyer 
stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus, like many of us, knows that all lawyers only ask questions that they already know the answers to. So he skillfully responds to the lawyer's question with one of his own. Jesus said, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Like, how do you interpret it? And the lawyer responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So that's what the lawyer says, the law says you should do to inherit eternal life. Knowing that he nailed the answer, the lawyer probably felt a little proud, and maybe he even had the beginning of a little smirk on his face. Then Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So the lawyer, having found himself so easily manipulated and embarrassed, he attempts to save face or to justify himself by asking a further question to test the Lord. And who is my neighbor? At this point, Jesus tells a story of what we refer to as the Good Samaritan. But Jesus never calls the Samaritan good. He calls him a certain Samaritan. He also refers to the beaten man as a certain man and the priest as a certain priest. The Greek word translated certain in English means some or any. So why is this significant? Let's remember that the lawyer wants to know who his neighbor is. Jesus begins the answer with, there was some man, a man, any man. This man was minding his own business, walking along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. This road in Jesus' day had already existed for several hundred years. The length of the road between Jerusalem and Jericho is 18 miles, and the elevation drops from 2,500 feet in Jerusalem to 900 feet below sea level in Jericho. It was a physically arduous trek by foot and fraught with danger from roving gangs of bandits. A particularly steep portion of this road cuts through a pass about five miles outside of Jericho. This area was a popular popular location for the bandits to ply their trade. The name of that pass in Arabic is Tal'at Edam, which means ascent of blood because of all the blood the bandits repeatedly shed at that place. So we're thinking that's where this story takes place. Our certain man had probably made that trip a number of times without incident, but this time was different. This time he was attacked, viciously beaten, stripped of everything he had, and left half dead at the side of the road. The term half dead comes from a compilation of two Greek words, meaning the man was literally halfway to dead, and without help soon, he would complete that journey. We assume the man was a Jew, which, due to the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans at the time of Christ, would have resulted in a more pointed message, but Jesus does not identify the man as a Jew or as belonging to any other ethnic group. He's just a certain man, 
a naked, beaten hunk of dying flesh at the side of the road. Jesus goes on to say that by chance, a certain priest was walking along that same road. And when he saw the man, he crossed to the other side. In other words, he put as much distance between him and that man as he could. And he kept on walking. Next, a Levite enters the crime scene, and he too moves over and continues his journey unabated. I think it's important to note here that a Hebrew priest in the time of Christ was required to follow strict cleanliness rituals. Priests were tasked with making offerings for the people to God and were required to maintain a high degree of physical hygiene for all temple activities. A high priest could not touch a dead body or even mourn for a family member who died if he was to go into the Holy of Holies, because at that time, he would have to be ceremonial cleansed, ceremonially cleansed again. And regaining ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing after a defilement like that took days. Although our man of the side of the road was only half dead, the priest may not have been able to ascertain that and may have figured that whatever duty he was currently involved with was more important than seeing to the needs of someone who may already be dead. A Levite was a keeper of the temple grounds. He too needed to stay ceremonially clean, but not to the same degree as the high priest. It would seem, therefore, that both these Jewish elites did not feel the need to risk self-defilement for the sake of the fallen man. From their points of view, they had more pressing matters. Our story continues in verse 33 and 34 with the arrival of the Samaritan. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So Jesus says the Samaritan was on a journey when he came upon the half-dead man. So he was intentionally traveling somewhere. He had somewhere to go. He had something to do. He had a plan. Like the priest and the Levite, he had a schedule to keep. But when he saw the victim, he reacted differently. He was motivated by compassion. He was motivated not by what he had in mind to accomplish that day, but he was motivated by someone else who he didn't even know, who needed his help. Here's what Webster's says about compassion. A feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for someone struck by misfortune, accompanied by a desire to alleviate the suffering. We know that as mercy. So a deep feeling of sympathy and sorrow for someone struck by misfortune. We all get that, don't we? Don't we all get a deep feeling of sorrow when someone we know, when those 12 soccer kids got trapped along with their coach? I mean, we felt for them, right? But then accompanied by a desire to alleviate that suffering. Sometimes we stop short of that saying, well, I would, but I've got these other things to do. I've got these other responsibilities. 
I really can't do anything right now. When the Samaritan saw the beaten man, a feeling of sympathy welled up with him, deep sympathy, and he immediately had a desire to alleviate the man's suffering. His actions became an exercise in mercy. The Samaritan interrupted his plans, his intentions, and his schedule in order to help someone in need. He put another person's needs in front of his own. In our day, that would mean at the very least pulling over and calling 911 on our cell phones and then perhaps waiting around for the EMT to arrive. The Samaritan, however, had to get a little more involved. He had to get his own hands dirty. There was no EMT back then. So the Bible says, And he, the Samaritan, came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan used what he had available. He used his own oil, his own wine, to treat the wounds, and then he bandaged them to protect them from further contamination. Once he treated the man at the scene, he loaded him onto his beast, probably a donkey, and took him to an inn. Once there, he continued to care for the man throughout the night until he was stable enough to leave in the care of the innkeeper. But before leaving, the Samaritan goes a step further. In verse 35, the Lord tells us, On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. The Samaritan gave the innkeeper two denarii, that's two days' wages, for the victim's continued care and instructed, instructed him to take care of him. The Samaritan was compassionate, but he was not ignorant of human nature. Having given the innkeeper two denarii, he knew that as soon as the innkeeper figured that sum was used up, there was a good chance the victim could be put out. So he added a promise, and that if additional costs were, were incurred, that he would pay them on his return trip. Our Samaritan was all in concerning this stranger who he found in a heap on the side of the road. Not only did he stop to help, he held nothing back. So then Jesus says, he, he ends with this question to our lawyer friend. And don't, don't take offense if you're a lawyer. I'm not really saying that all lawyers are like this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in with the robber's hand? Again, Jesus maneuvers the lawyer into answering his own question. Of course, the answer is obvious, and the lawyer responds correctly. He says, the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus wraps it up with the admonition, go and do the same. Go and do likewise. So my question now is, what does it take to be a neighbor? First, you have to come close to someone. That is, you have to be in someone else's life in some way to be a neighbor. It doesn't necessarily need to be someone you know. You don't have to have been in this person's life for a day, a year, or a lifetime. You just have to enter into that person's life, or that person has to enter into your life. Look at the person next to you, in front of you, behind you. 
they are your neighbors. Go ahead, look at them. They're your neighbors. We are neighbors. We are all in this together. This is one world, and we're here together. How many people were born and grew up in Arizona? Yeah, not very many. But yet here we all are. We're neighbors. But that isn't the point that Jesus is making here, is it? We can identify our neighbor all day long. We can accumulate hundreds of neighbors on our Facebook accounts as we share all manner of our lives for people to see and hear. The point, according to our Lord, is to love our neighbor. The point in the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus always tells a story on two levels. The first is the physical level. The second is the spiritual level. In the story of the Samaritan, we can easily relate to the physical part of the narrative. We have a crime scene with a half-dead victim present. The criminals are gone. The victim is now at the mercy of passers-by. The Samaritan could see something the priest and the Levi couldn't. The Samaritan could see something that the priest and the Levites could not. He could see a person made in the image and likeness of God. He could see another person like himself. Although beat up and naked, clinging precariously to life, the person was still wonderfully made and, in the Samaritan's eyes, worth saving. The Samaritan did not ask the man his ethnicity, his belief system, his community status, his profession, his sexual orientation, his government affiliation, or his stance on abortion. He recognized only that one of God's wonderful creatures was desperately in need of help, and he responded with everything at his disposal. He loved the person before him in the condition in which he found him. Who else does that sound like to you in our biblical history? Well, that's how God loves us. When he sent his son to provide salvation for our fallen world, he determined that as messed up as we are, we are worth saving. Even while being whipped, spit upon, mocked, and crucified, the Son of God, according to Luke 23, 34, looked up to heaven and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's how we are to love each other. That is life-changing love. The good news is that we don't have to die for the wrongs of others. Jesus already did that. We just have to be prepared to serve others, to be kind to others, to actually see the burden the person near us is carrying, whether it is an obvious physical burden or a not-so-obvious spiritual one, and then offer to lighten it. There's several of us here today, and I would assume that each one of us is carrying at least one burden. We don't know what your burden is. We don't know what each other's burden is unless we share it somehow. Some are obvious. They're right out there. People walk in, in, in with a cane. People are pushing a wheelchair. You know, we know that people are hurting. They're obvious. But I can tell you right now, there's not one person in this audience 
who does not need prayer, including me, including Pastor Steve. We all need prayer. We all have burdens. We may not get a chance to literally save someone's life in a dangerous, dramatic rescue attempt, but we may get a chance to change someone's point of view about life that will make it better, even for a little while. A kind word, an attentive ear, a tender caress are sometimes all that is needed. Those little mercies add up. I once had a certain Samaritan enter my life unexpectedly. I was moving from Detroit to Phoenix many years ago, not the first time I did that. I, made, I had a construction job waiting for me here, and I planned to save enough money as quickly as possible in order to bring my wife and my son out. At the time, I was driving a 1962 Chevy panel truck. It was loaded with everything we owned other than the clothes that my wife kept back for her and my son. The truck had a manual transmission, no air conditioning, and a broken speedometer. But it got me where I wanted to go, until it didn't. I was about 20 miles west of Albuquerque on Interstate 40 when the engine made an unwelcome noise and shut down. I rolled to the side of the highway. I got out. I'm not a mechanic, but I've had old vehicles enough in my life that I carried some basic tools with me. I remember checking the oil first, and when the dipstick showed that I had too much oil, I thought, that's odd. But I figured I would let some of it out to see if that helped. So I got under the truck and loosened the oil plug. When I, pulled the pl when I pulled the plug, water gushed out. A rod must have gone through the engine. It was dead. I sat on the side of the truck looking out over the desert, contemplating my next move. Things had not been going smoothly for quite a while, and the thought of just walking out into the desert until I ended up in some little town seemed appealing. Just leave it all behind. I had a CB radio in the truck, and as I sat there in a rare state of indecision and depression, it kept crackling with a voice hailing the tan van. I was irritated by the repetition of that voice. Eventually, I double-checked the color of my truck and thought, it's tan. I wonder if somebody's talking to me. So I grabbed the microphone, I stood up, and I looked over the truck, and I answered, and there's a guy parked across the interstate hailing me. And he said, I want to know if you needed any help. I said, you have no idea how much help I need. So he drove to the next exit and then came back and reversed his course, came back to my location, and he had a small car. He packed his small car with everything we could fit. Then we went to his house and picked up his wife's station wagon. We made two more trips back to the truck until we got everything unloaded. And he was a photographer in Albuquerque. He had a warehouse where he had his studio, and we stored everything in his studio in the warehouse. He also uh, took it upon himself to uh, contact a junkyard in the area uh, to come and tow the truck and to assess how much damage was done and what it would cost to fix it. Then we went back to his house. We sat down. He made me a ham sandwich. We cracked a couple of beers. We ate. We talked. Then he took me back to the interstate and on his CB got me a ride into Flagstaff, at which time I started hitchhiking again and 
Got a ride from down I-17 to Phoenix. That man amazed me. He held all my stuff until I could afford to come and get my truck. That took nearly two months. The junkyard operator who towed my truck also installed a used engine and replaced a throwout bearing in the clutch, all for $160, including the tow and everything. My new neighbor's outpouring of compassion may not have saved my life, but it certainly changed my life. His example changed my attitude toward others. I wanted to be that kind of person. It seems that he didn't have to actually see me to know I had a burden. And he seemed not only to be totally prepared, but almost eager to carve out several hours of his day to ease my load. I no longer remember his name, only that he was a photographer. But I remember his kindness. I remember his Christ-likeness. And I still feel his imprint on my life. I think it takes a servant's heart to even consider stopping to help a stranger on the side of the road or in any other situation. I also think you have to make a decision to help someone far in advance before you pull over safely to do that. But I think the deeper we are in our relationship with our Lord, the more Christ-like we become. And the more Christ-like we are, the more we can discern the condition of those around us. Once that happens, we can be led through faith to trust in God's Holy Spirit and put aside what we intend to do to stop and help another, some other, any other human being. In closing, I'll say to you what Jesus said to the certain lawyer. Go and do the same. Pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for all the things that you've given us, the blessings you've given us, the blessing just to be here and worship you. I thank you for the challenges in life, and we all have them. But also thank you for opening our eyes to the challenges of others. We think that we have it bad until we run into someone who has it worse. We think we have a pain in our leg or our shoulder or our head or some of us pain everywhere until we meet someone who has no legs, who has no arms, who has no love. Lord, help us to love those who are unlovable like you loved us when we were unlovable. Place your love in our hearts, your strength in our hands, your insight into our eyes. As we go from here, let us walk like you walk. Be like you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.